So Kevin has asked me to read the passage for this morning. So if you have a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, you can turn there. Otherwise, we have it on the screen as well. And this is a longer passage, um, so I encourage you to follow along. This is from Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God uh, come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a, a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. 
Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate that. Um, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this really profound chapter. I pray that in it, we can hear the gospel, we can hear good news, we can see Jesus 
for who he really is. And I pray that our hearts would be changed, that our faith in Jesus would be built, that this would not just be a bunch of words, that it would not be just a disconnected story, but that this would have meaning um, and it would, it would be powerful in us. So would you have your way in us in these moments now? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so there is so much going on in this passage. So we, we can't hit everything, right? So we're going to have to hit kind of some of the, the high points here of what is going on in this passage. I've titled this sermon, God Doesn't Play Favorites. And part of my thinking with this is there's this cultural idea that God chooses good people, right? Or, or maybe God has his favorites. And maybe that's not just a cultural idea that's out there. Maybe that's something that some of us struggle with, a concept that runs through our minds at times, or we wonder at times, maybe God is unjust in some ways. I've had this thing happen. I've seen this thing happen. I've experienced this thing. Maybe God is unjust. Maybe he does play favorites in some ways. And so part of what I want to do is push against that idea because it's really clear in this story that God does not show partiality, that he doesn't play favorites. And so we're going to try and mine that out this morning. But I want to go to the Old Testament to start with this. So we just read all these verses, right? Now I'm going to read some more verses from the book of Genesis. I want to go Genesis chapter 12, um, and you should be able to follow along here on the screen behind me. This says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what I want you to really hone in on here is that last phrase, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God comes to this man named Abram who will become Abraham. Okay, and he chooses this man. Not because he's impressive or he's good in any way, but because God has chosen him. And then he tells this man that you will be used in such a way that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. So yes, God did choose a man. Abram. And he also chose a nation, Israel. But that is not merely to the exclusion, to the detriment of all others. His reason for choosing was for the blessing of all people. So his sole intent was and is to bless all peoples, all nations. And so this is what we're learning in Acts 10 as well that God doesn't show partiality, that God doesn't play favorites. And maybe part of us are comforted by that fact, right? But maybe there's a part of us that wants God to play favorites as well. And so that's something that God probably wants to deal with in our respective hearts also. So one of the big ideas in this story in Acts 10 is that God's kingdom is expanding. Okay, so for many years, the nation of Israel had sought to be set apart, 
set apart from other nations and, and from other people. And so they had all these laws that God had given to them that they were instructed to keep, that intended to emphasize how they were different. They were distinctive from other nations. And so their obedience of these laws sought to show how they were holy. And the idea of being holy is that they were different from these other nations. The expansion we're seeing in Acts 10 is the distinction between Jews and Gentiles, and Gentiles are non-Jewish people, is that that distinction between these two people groups is being decimated. It's being done away with. So Gentiles are now being welcomed into Jesus' church. And maybe from where we are today, that, that doesn't seem like that's that big of a deal. But this is a scandalous concept. Completely shocking to those people in that day. So maybe the reality is that it can be hard for us to feel the shock and the awe of what's happening here. We live in a day where divisions no doubt still exist in significant ways, but the idea of diversity is talked about all the time. The idea of equality is not off-limits at all. It's encouraged in many contexts. These are things that are aspired after in many circles. So for, for us today, we might ask the question, like, what is the big deal? Why does it matter that Jews and Gentiles are mixing? So we need to do a bit of work to feel this distinction between Jew and Gentile. So there's this long, brutal history here. I'm going to share. I'm going to just set this down. I'm going to let you kind of run this because it's not responding to me. So, so there's a long, brutal history here that's going on with Jews and Gentiles. So first of all, there's this reality that God, when he chose his people, he told them there would be this promised land. Okay, And so he was going to bring them, his people, his chosen people, into this promised land. Now, the reality is, when that happens, they're going to drive other people out. Right? And so even in that, we can know there's going to be dissension that's caused. God's people are driving people out of the land that they think is theirs, that they had possessed, that they had lived in probably for centuries. Their families had inhabited these lands. And there's many places we could go in the Old Testament to illustrate this distinction between Jew and Gentile. But I'm going to go to the Old Testament prophet Jonah. What I did this past week is I, we preached through the book of Jonah a number of years ago. I went back to kind of the introduction sermon because I remembered preaching this, this part of Jonah and just trying to help us feel the hatred that existed between Jewish people and Gentile people. So do you want to throw up this quote that I pulled Okay, you guys are looking. I'm just not being able to see it here. Okay. So, 
This says, or I, I said in this previous sermon, sermon about Ninevites or Assyrians. So, so Nineveh was the city, okay, kind of the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrians were driving Jewish people out of their lands, conquering them, okay? So this is what they would do. They would re- routinely decapitate captured Israelite soldiers. They would rip out the tongues of people that they were conquering. They'd tie ropes to defeated soldiers and pull them so tight their skin would come off and then display it on city walls. They'd cut off the legs and one arm of defeated soldiers so they could mockingly shake their hand. They'd burn alive the children and women. Those that were not brutally killed would parade around with their loved ones' heads on a stake. Okay, so I'm, I'm not just reading that for dramatic effect. Like, this is the lived experience for people. That's so far from our reality, right? That's horrific. I mean, plenty of us probably just want to walk out of here, right? Like, it just makes our skin crawl, maybe makes our stomachs upset. So you can imagine, this is one example, but but you can go to all kinds of places in the Old Testament. This stuff is happening. There is hatred between Jew and Gentile. Also, because Jewish people had all kinds of laws dealing with cleanliness, they viewed Gentiles as being unclean for a variety of reasons. So Gentiles would touch blood, okay? Jewish people didn't do that. That was a big no-no. Gentile people ate unclean food, okay? So there, there were all these examples of ways in which Gentile or Jewish people were not supposed to eat certain foods. So there's history. There's religious reasons. There's emotional reasons. There's national pride reasons. All of these are aspects that played into this dynamic that emphasized hostility between Jew and Gentile. And these various factors led each of these people groups to think that they were superior to the other, that they could look down on these other people. And so all in all, what I want you to understand is that massive animosity existed between these two people groups. Very quickly, if they would see them, they would be happy to kill the other. So I do think this is hard for us to capture, right? I grew up in the sticks uh, in a small town, right? And when people disagreed, they were disagreeing about like they were either a Ford person or a Chevy person, right? And, and their hatred was they'd slap a bumper sticker on their vehicle saying how stupid the other side was about Ford or Chevy, okay? Maybe more in our day today, we see a little bit, hints of this in politics, right? You've got Republicans and you've got Democrats, right? And they, they're hurling insults. And maybe we're starting to see a bit more of the vitriol in our day, but still not to the extent that we see it here. So really, their view of each other is they're just dirty animals. That's how they would view each other. So this idea that Peter is confronted with in this vision in Acts 10, 
is abhorrent to him. So there's a reason that he's questioning this. Why three times it comes to him and it needs to be reinforced because it would be hard for him to believe. So I want to highlight how the distinction between Jews and Gentiles is connected to the law. Okay? So when I say the law, I'm talking about all the laws that God gave Israel. So these, these were the laws God gave to Israel as a way for them to separate themselves as holy from the other nations. Okay? So think Ten Commandments. Right? These are the laws that they are supposed to obey. But, but also there's hundreds of other laws that are given throughout the Old Testament as well. And you can, it's appropriate to think of those as well. But some of those laws pertain to what Israel was allowed to eat or not to eat. So I've got this slide that kind of lists out some of what was allowed and disallowed for Israelite people. It says, these certain animals are clean. These other animals are unclean. So, so cleanliness is a huge issue for Jewish people. And so the idea then is Gentiles are dirty. They're dirty. Now, we might look at this list, and there's really bad news in our day and age. If we, like, if you look closely... There's no bacon, okay? That's bad news for a lot of people. There's no lobster, there's no shrimp, right? There's a lot of bad news in all, and and that's what Gentiles would say about Jewish people. Like, how ridiculous are you? Like, you can't eat these types of things. So Peter then, in Acts 10, he's being told in this vision to have at it to go and eat, to enjoy these things. But he, naturally, is pumping the brakes. He's saying, this is wrong. Or at least it's always been wrong. So he tells this angel, and essentially God, I would never do this. Okay? I would not do this. But God persists, and he says, go and eat and enjoy these things. So the unfolding of the story here is really helpful, I think, because Peter is so confused. He is trying to figure out what is going on here. And he's trying to work it out in his own mind because he just doesn't know what to make of all of this. And it says here that he is inwardly perplexed, and maybe that's how we feel when we read Acts 10 as well. Maybe we feel inwardly perplexed. But as he, Peter, is inwardly perplexed, this delegation comes from Cornelius. And they call for Peter and they ask him to come to Cornelius' house. So what we see going on here is God's Spirit is at work in really profound ways. Okay? Peter gets this vision and he's got all kinds of questions. But God's Spirit is working in other ways, okay? And He's sending these people that are then going to jive with this vision that Peter is getting as well. And we read in Acts 10, verse 20, it, it talks there about without hesitation. So that's this phrase that's used, right? So Peter's supposed to go without 
hesitation. I don't, I don't think this captures really what's going on the, in the original language because there's another aspect going on here that I think is really helpful. So there's this idea of immediacy that's going on, but there's also this aspect of not making a distinction. So the idea being make no distinction Peter. So go immediately, yes, but make no distinction between Jew and Gentile as well. So Peter invites these men into the house to spend the night. He gets a chance to kind of process through all of these things that he's being confronted with. God's Spirit is at work because this, all of this is a big no-no for Peter, at least historically has been. So, the Spirit is at work helping Peter make sense of the vision. Okay, so there is this idea, God is breaking down this distinction between clean and unclean animals. But, But he's then relating this for Peter that he's also breaking down the distinction between clean and unclean people as well. Okay? So he wants Peter to view Gentiles on the same plane he views himself. So they sleep the night at this house that Peter was at, and then Peter heads to Cornelius' house. And upon arrival... This whole idea, all these things that Peter is feeling comes out. And he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Okay, so this is helping us to see what's actually going on in Peter and all this processing that needs to happen. Okay, this is the hurdle that he needs to get over because his whole life he's been told, don't go near them, hate them, you're better than them. And now all of this is being unraveled for him. So walking through this story, we see this beautiful interplay at work where God's Spirit is simultaneously leading Peter down a path as he also leads in the life of Cornelius as well. And this vision is unfolding in stages as the men sent from Cornelius come to Peter. Then Peter gets more of a vision and then they ask for Peter. And Peter is processing and then they spend a night And in all of this, we see God's Spirit moving, working, shaping, accomplishing His plan. And in the individual lives of these people, He's growing and maturing their faith as well. This is instructive for us. Sometimes as Christians we might learn new things, spiritual things. We might be challenged in certain ways by God's Word. And maybe when we learn those, those new things, we might think, ah, 
I've matured. I've kind of arrived in some way. We've attained a new level of maturity. And that may be true, and we can praise God that he matures us. He doesn't leave us where we are. But the reality for any Christian is the same as it is for Peter in this story. We need to grow. We need to be challenged. I'm not standing up here because I figured it all out. Not even close. We don't simply need to be educated. We don't need other people to see us as smart. We need to see Jesus for who He is. We need to see Jesus as central in everything. This was the gospel primer read by Michael earlier. This idea that Jesus is before all things. That He is the beginning. That He's holding everything together for us. So that in everything, He might be preeminent. Above all of it. Treasured, vital, precious. We need to grow up in faith, in Jesus. And to do that, there are things we need to leave behind. There are significant things in our lives that we need to leave behind. There are things that are really meaningful to us that we need to leave behind. Because Jesus has more for us. But the reality is, you and I need to be challenged in the faith. If we come here every Sunday and we don't feel challenged, something is wrong. If Jesus isn't pressing on us in our everyday lives, something is wrong. We try and give you a ton of gospel here at Center Church because we want you to be comforted. But we don't want you to be comfortable. We want you to be comforted. But that doesn't mean we live lives of ease. We can go to endless places in the Bible to find this. God wants to push His people. The Christian life is stretching. It's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. There are going to be plenty of times in your life as a Christian that you will say, I don't like this. And if you don't, you're not being honest. That's part of following Jesus. Dying to ourselves. Moving beyond our dreams and embracing Jesus' dreams for us. So when was the last time that you felt challenged? Like Peter probably feels challenged in this story. When was the last time you felt that? How did you feel this? And and what did you do when you felt it? Did you dismiss it? Ignore it? Distract yourself with entertainment? 
Did you talk to anybody else about it? Did you act immediately on it? I want to be really clear. We're going to be challenged to trust, okay? This isn't merely just a challenge to go do things. It will result in doing things, okay? But it's ultimately a challenge to trust. God's Spirit is seeking to work in us and around us, and it won't be easy, but it is for our good. And we're intended then to do all of this with Jesus' church. There's lots of specifics, lots of practicalities that need to be worked out as we believe the gospel. And we're intended to do that with one another, not just by ourselves, not just with our spouses if we have one, but with one another, with Jesus' church. And that's going to require a stretch for many of us as well to ask for help. It will require that. Asking people to give of themselves, to invest in you. Revealing weakness that you don't know all the answers. But this is what God desires for us. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says it this way. By the grace of God, I am what I am. This is part of how God wants to work in us, grow us, by His grace to form us to become who He desires for us to be. And that means that we're going to leave certain things behind. Certain things need to die. John Newton, he was an English slave trader, also did some pastoral work, um, eventually became a slavery abolitionist, maybe is most famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace. He said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So there's this reality. As Christians, we can look back and we can be thankful. I'm not what I once was. But that doesn't mean that there's not an ocean into which we need to dive and grow up into as well. We haven't arrived. There is so much we don't know. And Jesus desires for us not to just be content and comfortable, but to grow up into all that He has for us. But as the foundation of all of this, there is this reminder that it is God's grace that undergirds all of this. It is God's grace that saves us. It is His grace that keeps us. His grace that holds us. His grace that comforts us us. And it's only grace. It's not anything we might do. And I want to emphasize this point, that it's not anything we might do. I want to emphasize that here because there's a spot in this story that might cause us to wonder about the role of our works in saving or simply receiving God's approval. In verses 34 and 35, we read this. God shows no partiality. 
Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So, one of the great things about preaching through books of the Bible is that you got to wrestle through aspects that maybe cause you to question. And I'm guessing some of us maybe, when we saw this, thought, well, that really sounds like our right action is crucial to our acceptance in front of God. So the phrase, this is where, you know, sometimes we need to look into the original language and and there can be multiple meanings. There can be expanded meanings, right? So the phrase that we're reading, does what is right, isn't the most helpful. So, So the original word that's used there has in mind divinely righteous action. Okay, but it's talking about the things we do, right? But the word that's being used there has in mind primarily divinely righteous action. Well, we're not divine, for sure. So what's going on here? God's divinely righteous action can be embodied in humanity. It can be seen and experienced through our lives. But we need to understand that the idea of doing right or being righteous is a concept that originates in God himself. Okay, so so there's nothing that we do that adds to the righteousness of God. Okay, when God saves us, when he makes us righteous, he makes us righteous. And he doesn't do it most of the way, and then we fill in the rest of it. Jesus takes on our sin and gives us righteousness fully, completely. So our doing right is something then that God produces in us. So someone who is looking at Jesus, trusting in him, letting their life be shaped by Jesus, will then act in ways that are right in the eyes of God that exhibit righteousness. But it's not adding to the righteousness of God. It's displaying the righteousness of God. Ephesians 2 talks about this in the sense that God prepares good works for us to do in advance of us doing them. Us living in right ways, acceptable ways before God, is us simply walking in what He has prepared for us. Doing what He empowers us to do. Our acceptance isn't rooted in that. Our right living, right acting displays the fact that we understand that we are already accepted in God's eyes. That He made us righteous when we were unrighteous. That our right acting is something that God produces in us. And this then is related to the last point I want to highlight. This story speaks of the importance of the cross. And I've tried in a number of weeks to repeatedly show how this idea is crucial within the story of Acts. As Peter is preaching to the Gentiles in Acts 10, he is explicit in speaking about Jesus on the cross. And he says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. So the idea in the Old Testament of someone who hung on a tree is that only cursed people would hang on a tree. 
When someone hung on a tree, then everyone would know that person is cursed. So when it talks about Jesus hanging on a tree, the idea that is that he became cursed for us. Our sin demonstrates that we are cursed. Jesus' death on the cross demonstrates his willingness to take our curse from us upon himself and give us then righteousness. It demonstrates the good news of the gospel, that he is doing something for us we can't do in and of ourselves. And Jesus' intent then in all of this was to offer us peace. Because we were people, conscious or unconscious, who were at war with Jesus. Our sin makes us enemies with Jesus. Like Jews were enemies of Gentiles. It's like oil and water, okay? They don't mix. But Jesus is destroying the barriers. Removing them. And in so doing, bringing peace between Jew and Gentile. Bringing peace between the greatest of enemies demonstrating in a physical way what he does spiritually. We are his greatest enemies. And he is removing that barrier, drawing us near to him. And this was the peace that was long foretold to Jewish people. Peter says, to him, referring to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This, this is where peace is found. This is the one who was long promised to Israel. This is now the one who brings good news, not just to Israel, but also to the Gentiles as well. And praise God's name, that's to us today. Because we are Gentiles. And so in all of this, there's this intention that there is unending good news. And there's this call then for us to gladly preach Jesus. He forgives sins. He brings peace. He reconciles us to Himself. He saves. He is cursed for us. There is no shortage of good news in the Gospel. And this is why we like to end our times together focusing in on who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, we try and be really intentional about this. We want to hear who Jesus is. We, we need to be reminded what Jesus has done for us. But there's also this reality. As we believe that, it's going to shape us and form us. And it's going to result in us acting and living in certain ways as well. So at times, there are these calls that we hear through the text of the, that we might think of as commands or instructions. This is what gospel belief produces. And so our first point of gospel application is the gospel is given to be shared. Verse 42 in the verses we read today said, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Okay, so 
when we read about Jesus being judge of the living and the dead, I'm guessing many of us don't immediately think, oh, that's really good news. I want to go tell my neighbor about Jesus being the judge. But this is really good news. I want Jesus to be my judge. I don't want to have to live for my neighbor to live to get their approval. What a gift that we can live for someone who approves us. Not based on what we do, but on the fact that he did it for us. That's good news. So over and over, pervasively through the gospel, is good news. Good news that God intends for us to share with others. Good news that your neighbors, your friends, your family need to hear are actually crying out, whether they know it or not. Everything they're chasing after in this world is a demonstration that they long for Jesus. So the gospel is given to us to be shared. Secondly, God intends to grow us in faith. And this isn't go work hard. Figure it out. Grow yourself. No. He intends us to submit to him so that he, by his Holy Spirit working in us, can grow us and change us and build faith in us. There's this phrase that many of us have probably heard that says, God won't give you more than you can handle. And I will just roll my eyes at that. He will. And this is pervasive, okay? I even, I even read this on a... I was like doing some reading this week, and, and I was reading an exchange of some people at a, uh, a local Christian school. And, and they were just like going back and forth. And, and this was like kind of the genesis or the, the main idea. God won't give you more than you can handle kind of a thing. And, and the reality is he will give you more than you can handle. I guarantee you, Peter could not handle what he was being taught as he was seeing this vision. He was overwhelmed. He was confused by this reality. God will push us in ways that we don't like. And that's good. Now, I'm, I'm not advocating abusive types of things, okay? I'm, I'm not going there at all. I would call that out. I would push against that. But God will push us in ways that we don't like. You have beliefs. You have hang-ups. You have experiences, you have sins, you have stuff that God wants you to let go of. He wants you to care about Jesus and His church. Stop running back to these things. Stop letting these things be obstacles or hurdles. I'm not saying they're not unimportant, that they don't need to be dealt with. 
But they don't need to just drag us down. They don't need to suck the life out of us. Jesus is greater. He is preeminent. He is enough. Do you believe that He is enough? Do you see Him as good? Make your faith about Jesus. Not about you, not about your stuff, not about your issues, not about what someone did to you, not about how you were hurt. Make your faith about Jesus. Because Jesus is bigger than anything. I'm not saying let's not deal with the hurt. Okay? It needs to be dealt with. But let's deal with it. Let's work with it. Let's process through it. So what do you need to let go of? What do you need to surrender? What do you need to mature out of to let Jesus heal? Who do you need to forgive? Who don't you like associating with? But Jesus has called you into relationship with. And here's the reality. I don't want you to hear me saying, what do you need to do? Okay? At the end of the day, I want to happen what was happening in these verses. And what we read at the end of these verses is that God's Spirit fell. That's my hope. That the Holy Spirit would fall on us. That the weightiness that you feel on your shoulders would be the weightiness of God's glory. That He is better than whatever it is that sucks the life and hope and peace and joy out of us. He is better. He is enough.